0: Chapter eighteen of ONE LIFE, ONE LOVE by Mary ELIZABETH BRADDON. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. eighteen DAISY'S DIARY. How full of strange coincidences this life is! It is a small thing, of course, but still it has vexed and worried me more than I can say this morning the second after my wretched adventure in church street i heard a most hatefully familiar voice in the hall as i came downstairs from the second floor just before lunch i stopped on the first floor landing and listened to the voice below i had not a shadow of a doubt as to the owner of that hateful voice even before i looked over the balustrade and saw the odious wretch standing in the bright light from the south window talking to the butler it was the man who tormented me with his insolent invitation to supper at the oxford the man whom his companions called duverdier he was there in the morning sunshine a creature who should only have been visible at night and in the shabbiest places he was there in our pretty hall against a background of pale soft colour with the beautiful marble face of mimosony looking over his shoulder her finger-tip on her low broad brow and her head bent as if in thought There are several statues in the hall and the corridor, but Mnemosyne is my favourite among them all. Has Mr. Arden had my letters? He asked in his foreign English. Yes, sir, they have been given to him. Three letters. Yes, sir. Two yesterday and one this morning. Yes, sir, they were all given to him. And there is no answer. Was that Mr. Arden's message? Yes, sir. My master told me to tell you there was no answer and he declines to see me yes sir very good he said very good with a face like a thunder-cloud he lingered a little brushing his hat with his coat-cuff in an agitated manner and looking about him angrily first at one door and then at another as if he hoped to see uncle ambrose appear at one of them at last he turned on his heel abruptly and went out without another word i suppose he is one of that great army of begging letter-writers who assail both mother and uncle ambrose i sometimes pity them poor creatures when i see the long long letters many of them so well written consigned to the waste-paper basket and perhaps some of those piteous letters may have a good deal of truth in them it must seem to the shabby genteel poor that people who live in such a house as this and drive out in a fine carriage with splendid horses and have an army of servants and all that modern civilization can give of pleasure and prettiness it must seem as if they ought never to say no to the appeal of real want and yet if the rich people always said yes the fine house and the horses must go i wonder if it is wicked to keep so much for ourselves and give so little in proportion to what we keep the half of my goods have i given to the poor said the pharisee well it is wrong to be boastful no doubt but upon my word that pharisee had some justification for thinking well of himself i don't think mother and uncle ambrose give half their substance in charity kind and generous as they both are did that foreign person tell you his name i asked the butler as i went into the dining-room no ma'am and had he been here before to-day yes ma'am he called yesterday evening to inquire if there was any answer to his letters he sent two letters by a commissionaire one in the morning and another in the afternoon what an importunate wretch the man must be my blood runs cold at the thought that he may mean to tell my stepfather about having seen me walking alone in church street late at night he might make up any story and i should have no witness against him for i do not know the name of my good middle-aged friend in the cab if he dare to slander me i must tell uncle ambrose the whole truth and brave it out he will be shocked no doubt at the idea of my prowling about london secretly after dark but he cannot refuse to forgive me when i tell him of the insurmountable impulse which took me to that fatal house cyril and i went to hurlingham this afternoon with mother and saw a polo match and then strolled about the lawn and looked at the river together while mother sat on the terrace in front of the house talking to her friends it seems to me sometimes as if all the women in london must be her friends she is so beset wherever we go the public life the constant movement and perpetually changing faces do not suit me half so well as river lawn and its placid insipidity my books my piano an occasional single at tennis with beatrice reardon my boat my garden yes i love berkshire and i believe i hate london the day was lovely hurlingham was lovely cyril was full of the kindest attentions and yet i was not happy apart from my uncomfortable apprehensions about the man called duverdier i felt as if something had gone wrong in my life an afternoon that would have been perfect bliss a few weeks ago before we went to paris for instance seemed flat stale and unprofitable i looked at the river listlessly i was not interested even in the gowns some of which were extravagant enough to awaken the dead does this remind you of the adriatic cyril asked me as we stood side by side upon the lawn that slopes to the river not the least bit in the world how can you compare this dirty london river with that delicious blue sea you must be dreaming i am dreaming he answered i am dreaming of the hour when you and i stood side by side with our feet in the long grass that grows close to the sea on torcello i felt in just the wrong mood for sentiment every word he said jarred upon my nerves that's a very pretty speech but i know you wish yourself among those horrid pigeon-shooters i said flippantly and fond as i am of pigeons i felt that i would willingly sacrifice a few just to get rid of my companion he looked offended and then my conscience reproached me and i said something civil and then we walked up and down the lawn and he talked as i suppose lovers do talk all over the world it is not worth putting down in this midnight confidant of mine though sometimes i scribble whole conversations just for the love of scribbling do all engaged girls get tired of their fiancés? i wonder is there always this feeling of weariness this sense of the emptiness of life are all engagements as monotonous as mine cyril and i have been engaged less than four months and yet i feel as if it were half a lifetime i feel as if it were absurd in him to be sentimental or to say pretty things after such ages of courtship oh i wish i wish i wish i loved him better if it were only out of gratitude to uncle ambrose who is so pleased at the idea of our union and who has told me again and again how happy it makes him to know that cyril's happiness is secured could i disappoint him could i be inconstant or capricious could i write myself down that worthless creature a jilt after all the father's goodness to me and all the son's affection no my fate is sealed if the vows had been vowed at the altar i could hardly be more bound than i am bound in honour what bondage can be stronger uncle ambrose is so good to me but i have reproached him lately with neglecting my education which seems a hard thing now when i am getting older and as i venture to think worthier to be his pupil i remember the pains he used to take with me and the time he used to waste upon my exercises and compositions and resumes before i was in my teens and now when i want his help he is generally too much occupied to give it or if he consents to spend an hour in my morning-room hearing me read dante or virgil i can see that his mind is no longer in the work he used to give me such delightful explanations and illustrations over every page so that to read a page of the aeneid or the divine comedy with him was as good as a lecture upon classic or mediaeval history he used to throw himself into the work with all his heart talking of that old florentine world as if he had lived in it and been intimate with all the people flinging himself into vexed questions of politics or social life as if the argument were a thing of to-day as if dante had just left the city as if savonarola were still teaching and preaching and then he used to take such interest in any little composition of mine and would laugh so pleasantly at my ungrammatical construction my bread-and-butter missishness. now when his life ought to be utterly happy having won the wife of his heart there is a cloud upon his spirits he seems to have lost all zest for the books he once loved can it be that in his heart of hearts he knows my mother does not really love him that she gave herself to him in the hope of making his life happy of giving him some reward for years of quiet devotion on his part can it be that he knows as well as i know that her heart is buried in her first husband's grave this is the only solution i can imagine for that shadow of trouble which hangs over his life which makes all common pleasures a weariness to him which makes him tire of everything and turn restlessly from one frivolous amusement to another as if in search of forgetfulness rather than of happiness i asked him the other day why he had been so eager to set up an establishment in london and to plunge into the gay world i had two motives daisy he said with his grave explanatory air just like the uncle ambrose of my childhood the first was you i thought it only right that in your dawn of womanhood you should taste all the pleasures which are supposed to be delightful to your age and sex i did not want you to look back in the time to come and say to yourself my stepfather cheated me out of the privileges of my position in life he kept me mewed up in a country house when i ought to have been enjoying all the pleasures that society can offer to a rich man's daughter and heiress had he been my own father he would have been more considerate i did not want you to say that daisy perhaps when i was dust do you think i could ever have been so unjust or so ungrateful it would have been only human to have regretted pleasures you have never known He answered my secondary motive was purely selfish i never lived till i made your mother my wife i wanted to drink deep of the cup of life i wanted all the pleasures and gladness that life could give me even its most frivolous pleasures i wanted to see what the great world was like to hear my wife admired as a queen among women i wanted to share the amusements which might interest her to feel that our wedded life was one joyous holiday he broke off with a sigh the word joy sounded pure mockery from those pale lips uncle ambrose i like you ever so much better as a scholar and a recluse than as a man of fashion i cried in my impetuous way of course it was just one of those things i ought not to have said and i began to apologize i know how everybody admires you and how anxious people are to see you i said i hear them talking about you at parties asking if you are really the ambrose arden who wrote flesh or spirit and i hear them praising your noble head and your placid expression and quiet contemplative manner you are distinguished from the herd in whatever society you may appear but still but still i like my uncle ambrose of the berkshire lanes better than the gentleman with whom mother and i tread the mill round of london parties you are right daisy fashionable society is not my métier. But I wanted to see what the gay world was like, and whether there was anything in the atmosphere of London drawing rooms that could make a man forget the bundle of doubts, regrets, and disappointments which we call self. I find no Lethe in Mayfair or Belgravia, Daisy. Self goes about with me from square to street, and from street to square. He rose with a troubled sigh and began to pace the room. You to talk of disappointments! I cried reproachfully what a bad compliment to mother daisy you know as well as i do that to me your mother is simply the most adorable of women and yet i am disappointed and yet i am disheartened for i thought this butterfly life of ours would please her and i don't believe it does you should have left her in the home she loves i answered she was as happy there as she ever could be anywhere after the sorrow that clouded her life forever you cannot expect such a cloud as that to pass away altogether you cannot expect her ever to be just the same as other women in whose lives there has been no tragedy you ought never to have brought her to live in london don't you know that to her and to me this great gay london with all its wealth and brightness and headlong hunt after pleasure means only the city in which my father was murdered we can never forget that one fact to us london must always be the most hateful place in the world i was carried away by my feelings and said a good deal more than i meant to say does she feel that he asked stopping in his pacing up and down and looking at me fixedly i think she must i answered i know i do we will go away in a week or two he said hurriedly i will take you all to the lakes it is just the season to enjoy those shadowy hills and cool waters we don't want the lakes we want home and our own gardens and our own river i said angry at his caring for new places that is the only change mother and i care about he sighed and was silent and after a little more pacing to and fro he resumed his seat at my side and took up dante at the line where we had strayed away into conversation this talk occurred the day before my pilgrimage to denmark street that odious man has forced himself into my stepfather's presence after ever so many repulses and i am utterly mystified by his audacity and by my stepfather's reticence cyril and i were at the opera last night with mother mother had promised to show herself if it were for only half an hour at a reception at the foreign office where she is likely to meet all the people she knows and does not care a straw about so we dropped her in whitehall looking superb in pale grey brocade lighted up with sapphires and diamonds and with her beautiful throat rising out of a ruff of ostrich feathers and then the carriage took us home with instructions to go back for mother in half an hour uncle ambrose had been complaining of headache all day and was not well enough to go to either opera or party the door was opened and i was just going in when a man seemed to spring out of the darkness pushed himself in front of cyril who was following me and almost leapt into the house at my side there were two men in the hall but footmen are stupid solemn creatures trained to move slowly and to hold their chins in the air and neither of those two powdered dolts had the sense to stop him he walked straight to uncle ambrose's study at the back of the hall opened the door and went in i waited breathlessly expecting to see him flung out into the hall again in the next moment but he shut the door behind him and the door remained shut uncle ambrose was evidently giving him an interview cyril was furious do you know that fellow he asked the footman he have been here before sir arston for answers to his letters three or four or i should say as much as five or six times within the week one of the men stated solemnly as if he had been in a witness-box do you know his name or who and what he is i do not sir leastways only that he's a foreigner cyril walked over to the door of the study opened it and went in i waited with my heart beating violently expecting to be called in and questioned about my adventure in church street cyril came back to the hall in a minute or two my father seems to know the fellow and wishes to hear his grievance whatever it is he told me with a vexed air i don't like the look of the man and i told my father how he had pushed past me and rushed into the house however my father chooses to hear his story and i can say nothing come up to the divan daisy i don't want to be out of the way while that fellow is on the premises the divan is a little room on the half-flight fitted up in moresque style and only divided from the landing by a partition partly stained glass and partly carved sandalwood from persia it is a capital nook for gossip or flirtation and when we have a party the divan is always in great request it is lighted by an oriental lamp which is in perfect harmony with the decoration but which gives a very indifferent light cyril ordered strawberries and lemonade to be sent up to this retreat and we sat there for half an hour pretending to talk about the opera but both of us obviously preoccupied and uncomfortable and both of us listening for the opening of the study door below i know we talked in hushed voices and never withdrew our attention from what was going on downstairs we could see the hall door through the open door of the divan at the end of the vista beyond the shallow flight of stairs i hate mysteries cyril said at last in the midst of a languid debate about the merits and demerits of the new tenor i got up and cyril and i went to the landing and stood there looking over the balustrade into the hall until the door opened and his father's voice called to the footman see that man out whereupon the man opened the great hall door and the midnight visitor went out just a minute or so before the carriage stopped and my mother alighted she came into the hall in her long white cloak with its downy ostrich trimming such a lovely gracious figure the gems in her rich brown hair flashing in the lamplight uncle ambrose came out of his den to receive her were you amused dearest he asked was it a pleasant party it was a brilliant one at any rate she answered I met all the people we know, and a few stars and foreign orders that I don't know. How white you look, Ambrose! You ought not to be up so late. What was the use of staying away from the opera and the reception, only to tire yourself at home? I have not been tiring myself except with a dull book by a clever man. What pains some clever men take to be dull, by the way! I have been resting as much as I can rest, dear. I am past that golden age when sleep comes at will but you had a late visitor who was the man who went out of the house just before i arrived an old acquaintance that is to say a bookbinder who worked for me years ago who has the common complaint of old acquaintances impecuniousness and you helped him of course i heard his story and have promised to consider it but if he is in immediate want my dearest i have no opinion of the man's character and i am doubtful whether i ought to believe his story he forced an entrance into this house in an unwarrantable manner and it would have served him right had i sent for a policeman and given him in charge however he pleads sore distress as an excuse for his audacity and i let him tell me his story i shall do nothing for him unless i get some confirmation of his statement from a respectable quarter cyril and i were leaning over the balustrade straining our ears to listen a bookbinder that impertinent wretch is a bookbinder and what a tissue of falsehoods his story of distress must be when i saw him reeling out of a restaurant with his boon companions less than a week ago i suppose the wretch has said nothing about his meeting with me he may not have associated the name of hatrell with his old employer mr arden and yet a man of that kind hanging about the house as he has done would be likely to find out all about us he passed close to me as he pushed his way into the hall but it is just possible he did not recognize me in my very different style of dress there was nothing in my stepfather's manner to indicate agitation or irritation of any kind i never heard his melodious voice calmer or his accents more measured than when he explained the midnight visit to my mother in the hall the mountain has brought forth a mouse said cyril gaily mother came upstairs in the next minute so i wished cyril good-night and went up to her dressing-room with her to hear all about the party while her maid took off her jewels and finery july fifteenth we are at home once more in the dear old rooms and in the lovely old garden and i feel almost as if my sixteenth birthday was still a grand event in the future feel almost as young as i felt in the old childish days before mother's marriage and our italian travels and our london gaieties and all the experiences that have made me a woman of the world i feel almost as i felt at sixteen almost but not quite as happy as i felt then there is no use in keeping a diary unless one is sternly truthful and stern truth compels me to acknowledge to this book that i am not so happy as i was before mother's marriage and my own engagement to cyril in those old days i was as free as air free to think and to dream and to shape the many-coloured visions of my future life out of those idle dreams now my future is all mapped out for me and my life has a master who will dictate all things he is good he is devoted he is all that a fiance should be but still he is my master there can be no doubt of that my duty as his plighted wife involves confidence and obedience I am bound to confide in him i am bound to obey him oh i wish i wish i loved him better i wish i could feel as mother did when she was nineteen years of age and engaged to my father she has talked to me often of her thoughts and feelings at that time how it seemed to her as if all this life of ours and all this world we live in began and ended in robert hatrell i have never felt like that never 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 what a perverse wretch i must be how persistently all my thoughts and fancies drift into the wrong channel only this morning walking alone on the terrace where i made tea for mr florestan the fancy flashed into my mind that on that particular afternoon i was happier than i had ever been in my life what an idle notion, as idle and capricious as any of the fancies of my childhood, when I used to give myself up to daydreams, and lie upon the freshly cut grass in haymaking time, and think of all the people I loved most in history, and dream that I was walking in the woods beyond Lamford, with Charles I and Henrietta Maria, and that I was destined somehow to come between the king and his enemies, yes, to save him from the scaffold, to help him in his escape, like Flora Macdonald with the young pretender charles edward was not romantic enough for me alas i knew that he grew fat and took to drinking in his old age history is so brutal charles i was my hero i forgot all his shiftiness and double-dealing his selfish sense of his own importance his cowardly abandonment of strafford i forgot everything except that his head was very beautiful as Van Dyke painted it and that bradshaw and his crew cut it off foolish foolish alice in wonderland fancies every girl of eleven or twelve has her wonderland and if she has been crammed with history it is not of birds and beasts that she dreams but of joan of arc and her martyrdom at Rouen, or of henry i bourbon king murdered in the quaint old streets of mediaeval paris or of mary of scotland or marie antoinette and the young dauphin who suffered the most cruel reverse of fortune that ever prince endured and who died mysteriously done to death in the wicked old prison My earliest dreams were of heroes and martyrs, my chosen favorites in the world of the dim romantic past. Then came more egotistical daydreams, visions of the life that I was to lead, and the wonderful things I was to do when I grew up. When I grew up, oh, phrase of marvelous meaning! Wealth, wisdom, power unlimited were to come to me as a matter of course when I had grown up. I was to be very beautiful, lovelier than anyone else there would be no good in a commonplace everyday beauty i must be beautiful exceedingly an advantage which would not be without its drawbacks as i should have on an average to reject a suitor a day beauty has its duties as well as its rights the duty of crushing presumptuous pretenders to its favour vainest idlest visions i am blushing dear diary at the mere recollection of my absurdity but i am happy to say this kind of daydream only lasted as long as the novelty of being in my teens and the first keen delight of wearing a gold watch which mother gave me on my thirteenth birthday later visions were of philanthropic revolutions i was to be the guardian angel of a great district in the poorest part of london i saw myself walking in streets and alleys where the police hardly dared to enter i saw myself visiting the hospitals carrying good tidings to the dying my heart swelled at the thought of the good i would do when i grew up if mother would only let me do just as i liked and spend my money how i liked some foolish chattering maidservant had told me that i should be rich that i should have my own independent fortune when i grew up there were other castles in the air that indicate a substratum of inordinate vanity under all my girlish shyness i could not take up an art without dreaming that i was going to excel in it if i got on fairly well with my practice of mozart's sonatas i fancied that i was going to work on until i became a second schumann or esipoff if i just managed to paint a little water-coloured sketch of the river or the village the gable end of a cottage and a bit of garden a backwater under the willows i saw before my eager footsteps a long bright road leading to a dazzling temple where fame sat ready with garlands and trumpets and gold medals ready to pronounce me second only to millet for figure and landscape idle idle dreams they have all fled long ago fled into the limbo of childish things gone to the great rubbish heap where some of my dearest dolls are rotting i hope and believe that i am cured of silly vanities and that i am a fairly sensible young woman quite aware of the difference of my dream nose a perfect grecian and my real nose a very tolerable retrousse quite aware that a complexion powdered with freckles every summer can hardly be called alabaster my dream self had a distinctly alabaster complexion in a word i am aware of all my shortcomings mental and physical and am reconciled to them all i ask in life is to live always with or very near mother to be happy and the cause of happiness in others is that too much to ask i wonder in a world so full of suffering i fear it is if one had newly alighted upon this earth in some tropical valley or by some italian lake one would suppose it a world made only for bliss who would suspect earthquakes or disastrous tempests floods disease and famine poisonous serpents and savage tigers upon so fair a planet who would ever guess new to the scene that the majority of mankind are full of trouble as the sparks fly upward no there was never a more idle thought than that of mine which dwelt so obstinately upon the one-half-hour I spent with Mr. Florestan, tete tete upon the terrace. I don't believe it was more than twenty minutes. I know I made myself excessively disagreeable in order that he should not stay too long. I was seized with an attack of prudishness, I'm afraid, for after all it could not have been very bad manners to give a visitor a cup of tea in my mother's absence. Fountainhead is empty now i hear the plashing of the fountain when i walk in the shrubbery that joins his shrubbery the trees were planted the autumn after my father's death when mother was just well enough to be wheeled about in her bath-chair to watch the planting i can see her face now as it looked then pale as marble and without a smile the trees have grown ever so big chestnuts red and white acacias mountain ash and copper beech conifers of every kind tremulous birches silvery white in sunshine or moonlight it is a delightful shrubbery arranged in careless seeming curves and with labyrinthine paths and here and there a rustic bench and in one deep wooded nook a rustic summer-house at a season like this when the glare on the terrace is almost too much to be endured even by a sun worshipper like me i bring my books and my work to this summer-house i am writing in it now and the dogs find me and we make ourselves at home here aloof from all the world there is no sound but the plash of mr florestan's fountain and the song of the thrushes which revel in this shrubbery the nightingales are gone already how soon the glory of summer dwindles away it must be horribly warm in paris at this season and i read in the papers that the city is given over to summer tourists yet i suppose mr florestan prefers paris to berkshire In all probability, he has gone off with the rest of the great world and is taking the waters of Vichy or Royat, or away in that wonderful mountain region in the Pyrenees, where healing and beauty go hand in hand. Wherever he may be, I am glad we are here. Uncle Ambrose pleaded hard for the English lakes. He had all but taken a house at Grasmere. But mother and I both wanted to come home, and we are at home, and we ought to be happy. I wish Uncle Ambrose were happier. It grieves me to see that the desire of his heart has not brought him happiness. Mother is so attentive to him, so full of tenderness and forethought, but I know, I know it is not love that she gives him, and his heart hungers for love. I pity them both. Yes, it is just that, the one thing wanting. It is the little rift within the lute. Oh, diary of mine, it is an evil thing to marry without love the more i think of mother and her second husband and the more i think of cyril and myself the more i feel that it is an evil thing it is an unmitigated evil to marry a man to whom one cannot give one's whole heart i pray god every morning and every night that i may grow fonder of cyril that i may learn to adore him between now and our wedding-day an engaged girl once told me that she did not care a straw for her fiancé when she accepted him she only thought that it would be nice to be married and have a house of her own and she had visions of her trousseau and her mother had promised to give her half her diamonds when she married all sorts of selfish considerations but by the time she had been engaged three months she felt that she could beg her bread barefoot through the world with a man who was to be her husband that was her way of putting it cyril is clever generous-minded good-looking he is a fine tennis-player he sculls splendidly a girl ought to find it easy to adore him-What can I want in a lover if I am not satisfied with him-do I expect to marry a demigod? end of chapter eighteen.